In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you uh, for having me today. Um, The feeling that, Jonathan, I appreciate your kind words. That feeling is is mutual. Um, We've gone through a lot in the last couple years of ministry. It's been an interesting time, and they have ministered to my soul well in the last few years. So um, my church gets to experience Dave today, (laughs) so I'm excited about that, and I'm here with you. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, as it was just read, I would like to have a word of prayer as we go into the text this morning. Lord, at times when we have something novel in our services that can usurp the value of what you intend to accomplish. So we pray that any distractions might be set aside this morning and that your word through the empowerment of the Spirit illuminating the truth in our minds would do an intense and valuable work that we would not come here this morning having wasted our time, that we would come worshiping a God who is worthy of worship and submitting to a word that you have given to us that is worthy of our consideration and submission. So we expect the Spirit to do a great work in our hearts today. So we ask that you would allow all of our hearts to be receptive to your truth and that my words would be clear and understandable and that your text would be that which changes and transforms us. 
And we expect that. We come with confidence, knowing that is your desire, so we ask in accordance with your will, excited to see how you work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to consider two types of errands. First, errands that can run independent of each other. So I, a couple weeks ago, I had a list of things uh, to get for our, our house. I needed to pick up a couple light bulbs from the hardware store. I needed to pick up some milk from Quick Trip. It just happened to be on sale that day. I had to cash a check at the bank. I needed to stop by the grocery store and pick up ice cream so that we could all drown our sorrows in that and find some happiness. And each of these things are, are, can be done separate from one another, right? Now, you might argue, well, you want to make sure the ice cream's near the end so it doesn't. But right now, in this weather, anything would be fine. So these four errands could be run separate from one another. It wouldn't really matter what order. Maybe you'd think of a route that would make the most sense. But all of them could be run separate. It wouldn't matter. A lot of times, our errands in life are like that. Sometimes, errands have to be run in order or it doesn't work. I have four children. When my daughter was three, my son was one, and we had twins born. So I had four kids, three and under. I have an exciting life. My, just for sake of you getting to know me just a tad bit, my daughter's in college at Concordia University. My son is at Lakeside Lutheran, uh, and my twins are uh, sophomores. Uh, my son's going to graduate from Lakeside this year, and my twins are sophomores. Uh, at Waterloo High School. When they'd come in from play, we didn't have grass in our yard for the first couple years when we lived in Michigan in the church prior to where we're at now. If they were to come in having played in our yard, they'd be filthy. So there would be a certain order of events that should occur for cleanliness to come about, right? They should come in, they should take off their shoes, they should go to the bathroom, they should maybe turn on the water, maybe this errand wouldn't matter, but turn on the water, take off their clothes, get into the tub, put soap on themselves everywhere, just them, not the walls and such, wash off, get out, rinse off, put on their pajamas and their underwear in the reverse order of that, and they would theoretically be done, and their errands would have been accomplished in a specific order. If that order is not followed, all of a sudden you have a filthy child standing in a wet bathtub in full pajamas, wondering to do what, what with the soap. The errands, the order matters. In chapter 6 of his book, Isaiah offers a paradigm for proper motivation for service and the pursuit of holiness. And the order matters. God manifests his glory in a number of ways, Isaiah responds with humility to that glory. Due to Isaiah's response of humility, God extends forgiveness and grace to Isaiah. And as an extension of God's grace and his revelation of glory, Isaiah submits to and serves God. That order matters. I would like for us to walk through Isaiah's interaction with God in this temple in Isaiah 6. And like, like to make special emphasis on this point. Our service to God must be motivated by our humble appreciation for God's glory and grace. Let me say that one more time. Our service to God must be motivated 
by our humble appreciation for God's glory and grace. And the reason that I emphasize this particular point is our natural tendency to be motivated to serve in order to earn God's favor instead of serving out of gratitude for having already gained his favor in Christ. For us to, I think, fully or at least more fully appreciate the context of this text this morning, I need to give you a little bit of background. I probably would have done this already if we were going through a series of Isaiah. I've got one shot with you. You're going to probably get more than what you asked for this morning. So I need to give you a little bit of backdrop to Isaiah chapter 6. There's two characters that I want to just quickly describe before we jump into this scenario. Isaiah. Isaiah ministered to southern Judah during the reign of at least three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, he likely, and this is where some debate, if you were to read this, it's interesting, but not necessarily pertinent to our text this morning. He probably ministered at the end of Uzziah's reign. Chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, God commissions Isaiah. Now, I think he had already been commissioned to go to Judah and extend to them uh, a message of confession and repentance, a call to repentance that they did not listen to. Hence why we have actually the commissioning here in chapter 6, the response to their hardened hearts. But I think the first five chapters probably took place, I think chronologically, prior to the year of Uzziah's death, in the end of Uzziah's reign where Isaiah went and he ministered to Judah and, and, and called them to repentance. At the initiation of chapter 6, you see the death of King Uzziah. So likely... Isaiah ministers for 60 years, starting near the end of Uzziah's reign into Manasseh and probably martyred by Manasseh at some point in Manasseh's early part of his reign. It's a long time to minister to a, people of, a group of people that continually rejected him. 60 years, likely. At least uh, 40 to 60. 40 minimally, 60 more likely. So that's Isaiah. That's his ministry. We're at near the beginning of Isaiah's ministry at the point of this text. Uzziah has just died. He's the king. He reigned over Judah at the age of 16, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. And up front, if you were to read 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, you read of uh, Uzziah. It says there in 2 Kings, it calls him Amaziah. Same person, different name in the different uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. It says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He had a good start. During Uzziah's prosperous 52-year reign, Judah develops as a strong military and commercial state. However, although economically prosperous, Uzziah fails to spiritually lead Israel. Ultimately, 2 Kings briefly acknowledges, 2 Chronicles outlines, Uzziah wrongly enters the temple and he goes to burn incense on the altar. The priests come in, uh, Azariah comes in with 80 additional priests and confronts Uzziah in the temple. They follow him in, they confront him, he becomes angry, he takes the censer from their hands and he goes to offer this burnt incense. And in that, that moment, God condemns Uzziah's pride and leprosy breaks out all over his body. And for the rest of his life, he has to live in a separate home away from everyone for the rest of his life. So when at the end of Uzziah's life, 
that's the, the tenor of the reign of the king. So there's a, a few realities that I just want as a backdrop to this story. Isaiah has offered them, and this will matter at the end of the message. Isaiah offered them a message of repentance and confession, and they rejected it. So that's going on in the background of this story. Much of Uzziah's reign, he, he served well. He followed the Lord, but the people did not. That's important. Uzziah's transgression in the temple is a stark contrast to the glory of God in the temple in this text in chapter 6. And one other backdrop to this, one final one, at the time Assyria is ruling the world, it's the strongest nation in the world, Uzziah dies, the present rulers in Judah are Jotham and Ahaz, and Jotham is weak, uh, Uzziah's son is weak, and Ahaz is pro-Assyrian. So the people have lost their good king because he went into the temple in his arrogance, and he did that which he was not allowed to do. In such moments, Judah wonders who's going to lead us, who'd come and rescue them. Isaiah answers an unspoken question. Judah's asking, who are we to lean on and place our hope in when circumstances are difficult? And Isaiah tells us in his vision, mine eyes have seen the king. Isaiah begins with, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train, the hem of his robe filled the temple. Just the hem filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am lost I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Unlike Uzziah, a king who can't touch anything in the temple without being cursed with leprosy and abandoned for the rest of his life, and he loses all authority, simply the hem of God's robe fills the temple, and seraphim fill the air with glory. In this brief but dynamic commission, we observe four actions. And the first is God manifests his glory. Isaiah saw God's glory as God's greatness and his holiness are revealed. We see it a, a number of ways. Some of it's in the presentation of the scenario and some of it's in the verbiage of the seraphim. The Lord is, sits high and lifted up. The throne isn't high and lifted up. Of course, if he's high and lifted up, maybe the throne's up there with him, but the throne is almost irrelevant. It's that the Lord is high and lifted up. And it's not even so much about positioning as it is about a position of exaltation. He's the ultimate, the penultimate. He is high and lifted up. God is above all. It speaks of his transcendence. The bottom of his robe happens to fill the temple to the point where Isaiah can't even come into the temple. He stands, all, his entire perspective of this chapter is of Isaiah standing in the doorway because he can't get in because the hymn of God is so robust that it fills the entire temple and God sits high and lifted up. So his position 
streams his glory. The robe filling the temple as well declares his glory. The thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. God reveals his magnificence and transcendence, his greatness in the filling of the temple and the thundering communication. If you, if you were to think of two things, one, the, the foundations shaking and the smoke that is going out from the area, if I draw your attention to these, I'm sure there are two, uh, or at least one of these would be very familiar to you. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, the same kind of a scenario uh, occurs. Now, Mount Sinai, when Moses is up on the mountain, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. David, when he writes his psalm, chapter 18, he, he talks about how he calls out to God, and God, in his anger over the injustice that had been done, he, David writes this in Psalm 18, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went out from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. This is the scenario that Isaiah stands in the midst of this doorway seeing. And not only is this this senses stirred within him as he stands and sees this, he hears it being told to him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The seraphim fly and you have this bizarre picture of these angelic beings with six wings. With two they cover their faces, with two they fly, and two they cover their feet. Some have argued, such as Calvin and Leopold, uh, they propose the seraphim cover their face because even angels cannot endure God's brightness or gaze upon the Holy One. That's very possible that that's why they do it. Others, such as Gary Smith, propose the seraphim covered their faces, not from shame or guilt, not because of their inability to look at God. Their humble posture was likely motivated by the natural tendency to bow and worship before the holy glory of God. Smith's interpretation would coincide well with the various people throughout Scripture who fell on their faces when confronted by God. Not only did the seraphim cover their eyes and feet from the presence of God, they used their final set of wings as instruments of praise to declare God's greatness. It's so glorious as you think of the holiness of God. In essence, the holiness of God is the internal reality of who God is, and God's glory is the manifestation of his holiness. And we glorify him by declaring and reflecting his glory, right? We can declare his love, his righteousness, his wrath, We declare that, but we also reflect his righteousness or strive to reflect his righteousness, strive to reflect his love, strive to reflect his mercy. When God manifests his mercy and his love or others declare it, he is glorified. In this passage, God's glory, his holiness is revealed both audibly and in the scenario itself. And Hebrew uses repetition to express the emphasis of this holiness. Holy, holy, holy. They, in the same way that sometimes we were like, it, it was really, really, 
really awesome. Like, we don't know what words to use to uh, make it more awesome, right? The same kind of concept is in, whole, is in this concept. One place in the Old Testament where you have this kind of emphasis of, of, of three holies, just to emphasize man does not even have the term, Isaiah did not even have the term, the seraphim did not even have the term for the holiness of God. He's just holy, holy, holy. So God manifests his glory. And what is Isaiah's response? The second action in this brief and dynamic scenario, this commissioning of Isaiah, the second action is that Isaiah responds with humility. He says, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amid a people of unclean lips. There's a couple ways to look at this unclean lips, the, the struggle that Isaiah was having. We know that in like Matthew it says what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So we know that which is in us produces what we say. So is he thinking of Isaiah was aware of his own brokenness and that his lips revealed his own brokenness? It's possible that that's what he was emphasizing. It's also possible that in this moment Isaiah re- saw his his frailty, his sinfulness, his brokenness, his people's brokenness, and in comparison to God and what the seraphim were doing, he, he could never imagine how his lips could proclaim the holiness of God, such defiled lips to proclaim God's greatness. I'm not sure which one it was. It's one of those two, or maybe a mix of them both. Isaiah just realizes in comparison to the holiness of God, he is nothing. I'm lost. I've got nothing to offer you. I'm broken. Let me just draw your attention to the fact that God, that Isaiah does not in any way seem to imply that he expects grace. There's no expectation. I'm lost and, and I'm done. There's no, so it's time you kick in the grace now. He doesn't seem to to see that. He doesn't see that coming, which makes it all the more glorious when the third action of God comes. So God has manifested his glory, and Isaiah is broken, and he responds in humility. And in God's grace, God extends to Isaiah forgiveness. The seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. The seraphim that proceed to touch Isaiah's lips with the coal and declare your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So this vision is taking place in the temple. So the seraphim likely took a coal from the sacrificial altar, an altar which pictures the forgiveness of sins, which would one day, right, ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. In the same way that a believer receives forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ, God graciously extends forgiveness to Isaiah through this act. This was an act of God's grace. Isaiah did nothing to accomplish his atonement. Isaiah offered no sacrifices. He did not offer some promise to be uh, a missionary or to serve in a specific way to gain this act of grace. He had no power to save himself from certain ruin. God in his grace extends forgiveness to Isaiah. Which leads us to the fourth action of this brief 
and dynamic commissioning. Isaiah submits and serves. God has manifested his glory. Isaiah has responded in humility. God has extended his grace and forgiveness to Isaiah. And then God says to Isaiah, so who's going to go for me and proclaim this message? And the natural response for Isaiah in the midst of this humility and forgiveness is to say, here I am, send me. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Humility and forgiveness precede service. Mistakenly, at times, we serve to be forgiven. Instead, let us humble ourselves as we see God revealed in Scripture and accept the forgiveness offered in His Son. God honoring service follows our humility and forgiveness. John Oswald says it well in his commentary. I'll just read him just a, a few sentences. It is foolish for us to think that we can somehow serve God until we have come to the end of ourselves. As long as we think there is some hope of a human solution to our problems, there is little chance of our genuinely seeing God. Nor is there hope for any of us becoming servants of the living God without there first being an adequate understanding of who he is. As long as I think that I can solve my problems with a little help from God, of course, then I am the sovereign and he is the servant. When we have come to the end of ourselves, we are in then a place to perform acceptable service. So Isaiah offers us a a unique and glorious encounter with God. In this encounter, his experience is unique to him. Now, I have not yet stepped to any kind of point of application to us, really. This is a unique experience to an individual, Isaiah, commissioned to go to a specific group of people at a specific time. We're not all called to go give the same message of Isaiah. Similar, but, but not the same. However, within this experience, we find a timeless paradigm for appropriately responding to the glory and grace of God. As we see God's attributes manifest, or as we see God's glory revealed, we are to respond with humility, confession, and repentance. And gloriously, the same God who extended forgiveness to Isaiah by means of symbolic coal from the altar extends forgiveness to us by means of the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We then respond to that display of forgiveness with submission and service. Remember, the order matters. We don't submit and serve to obtain or gain God's favor and forgiveness. Instead, we have seen God's glory and experienced his grace through Christ. Therefore, we now have that which motivates us to live lives of holiness and submission to his will and a call to serve. Like Isaiah, God inquires to you, who shall I send and who will go? There's a general call to his people. I have a message that I want to tell the world. Who's going to go? As we see the glory of God and the forgiveness experienced through Christ, the appropriate response 
the natural response, if we've seen God's glory and have responded in brokenness and experienced forgiveness through Christ, is I, I, I'll go. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know where that'll be. That might be at my place of employment. That might be in my family. That might be at uh, you go in the ministry or you go in the mission field. I don't know what God has for you, but there's this willingness to surrender to whatever it is. How are we doing? Jonathan, like, when am I supposed to be done? Well, I got a second message. Now, I know that scares you. I, that scares you maybe a little bit. It's like really, really short. Okay. You're responding, some of you at least. I'm looking at your faces real quick here. Oh, no, please don't have this guy come back. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take from your smiles, mostly, that you want this next part. Because I really want to give you this next part. If I were your pastor, this would be next week's message. But I'm not. So, I mean, you know, I, I can do it. Okay. So, really, I'm, I'm pausing. Like, this is an abrupt pause. Serve God as you see God glorified and you experience forgiveness in Christ. That's the point. Don't serve God to gain his favor. Serve God because you already have his favor in Christ. Isn't that glorious? It's sure is. Okay, but there's still this beautiful rest of the, the book. And I'm not going to take as much time in the second part as the first. Really, it's pretty, pretty short. But there's this beautiful phrase that I, I, it would be wrong of me not to share with you this morning. Isaiah's message is tough. That's why I brought out in the beginning of the message, I believe the first five chapters are to Judah, extending to them a call to confession and repentance. Because if you were to just come and say, this was Isaiah's message from the beginning, this is all he ever gave Judah, you might sit there like, man, that just, mm, he doesn't ever kind of seem to give them a chance to come back. We have to remember there's been lots of years for them to come back. Okay? And I'm not going to jump to the discussion or debate about the message itself. It's very negative. Let's, let me read it, and then let me just emphasize basically one beautiful phrase. This is what God calls Isaiah to, to communicate to the people of Judah. This is a rough one. Listen. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Like there, we're, we're starting right up front with cynicism, right? You're not going to care. You don't care. You're, you're not even going to understand it. You're going to remain in darkness. Um, okay. Keep on seeing, don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their, eyes, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes. We want one of them to see with their eyes or hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. So make their heart dull so that they don't understand and don't turn. That's what verse 10 says. And Isaiah naturally says, uh, hmm, how long? Like, how long does that go on? Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. Wow, Isaiah, super encouraging stuff you got there, right? You're going to be destroyed. We're going to purposefully dull your mind so that you don't understand. 
you're going to reject and you're going to be destroyed and leave. Your house is empty, your land empty. Before reveling in the beauty of this next phrase, let me draw a point of application. Our call to this world is not the same as this, but the response is similar. We're pretty quick to, to throw in there the hope right up front, right? But most of the world will reject it. Most people will not understand it. They'll hate the messenger. They'll hate the message. We, we, do, we are sent by God to offer a message that is not desirable by most people. So in that sense, we're like Isaiah. God says to you, I want you to go proclaim the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of mankind, but that means that mankind is sinful. And they have to acknowledge their sinfulness before they can accept the hope of Jesus Christ. Believing that singularly Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the only payment for their sins, the only way for them to be restored back to the Father. Only one. And that's offensive. The cross is offensive. And that is the message we're called to give. And most people will reject it. So similarly, we can connect to Isaiah's message in that sense. But there is this glorious little ray of light that, fly, that comes from the end of this passage, and it starts with the statement, a tenth remains in it. Oh, so there's not entire devastation. So the tree is going to be burned, but like the stump is going to remain. And obviously most of us are, in, are, are looking at the burning of and the destruction of the tree, but there's this little bit of hope. There's a stump that still remains. Okay, so God preserves a remnant in this. There's hope there. And then there's this phrase that Isaiah adds to the very end of the the passage. God has given Isaiah that, that which he desires Isaiah to communicate. And Isaiah adds this sentence, the holy seed is its stump. This small, albeit significant ray of hope Isaiah ends his chapter with. We could easily miss the hope in this sentence due to the quite negative momentum of the previous verses and the destruction mentioned in this verse. However, let me, let me draw your attention to that ray of hope for just a moment. Even though the tree will be destroyed, God will remain or preserve a tenth of the tree. And he ushers in a glorious hope in the final words here in this chapter. In chapter 6, Isaiah just shines, just shines a, a, a little light in the midst of this really harsh message. However, if you were to turn over to chapter 11, and the first, I'm not going to read the first 16 verses, I'm going to read some of them if you want to turn over there and follow along. In chapter 11, he outlines in greater length the significance of this stump and the holy seed. Let me read for you just a couple of those verses in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the, the stump left is the stump of Jesse. So the stump mentioned in Isaiah 6 is the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11. This stump, what comes from this, the root that comes from this, 
shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In that day the root of Jesse, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. Who is the seed? Who is the root of Jesse that will strike the earth? Who will extend his hand and recover the remnant? Who is the young plant of Isaiah 53 who grows up like a root out of dry ground, who has no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him? Who is this? Well, you know. The Apostle John indicates Jesus as the fulfillment of these texts. In fact, amazing. After quoting from Isaiah 6, the Apostle John writes this, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory. John the Apostle knew that Isaiah proclaimed what he did in Isaiah chapter 6 because he saw Jesus' glory. And he spoke of Jesus. That's glorious. The holy seed of the stump of Isaiah 6, the young plant and root out of dry ground of Isaiah 53, is the Jesus of John's gospel and the root of David in Revelation. Let me end with one final verse. In the revelation of John, one of the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has done what? He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. God called Isaiah to a hard task. While Isaiah primarily offered a message of destruction, punishment, and rebellion, he as well included the future hope of Jesus Christ in just one phrase. And we're called to a similar task. The message we offer the world is offensive. Most will not understand. Most will hate the message, the messenger. Most will reject, but some will accept. So persevere, and they will be preserved. So never fail to offer the glorious hope of Jesus Christ. Walter Brueggemann, I end with this, Walter Brueggemann writes in a prayer book that he, uh, his, his personal prayers on Isaiah 6, uh, I'm sorry, from Isaiah 6 on October 9th, 2001. I love this brief prayer. One time holy, two times holy, three times holy, all cry, holy, holy, holy. You, holy, you, unutterable, dread-filled, beyond us, so unlike us. We dare glimpse your presence. Your holiness testifies to our uncleanness. Your fierceness tells our apathy. Your peaceableness notices our pugnacity. Your generosity bespeaks our stinginess. So unlike you, yet called by you, yet sent by you, yet authorized by you to hard places, to tough times, to resistant circumstances. Called your instruments to the hard places that match your holy purposes, peace, mercy, compassion. 
and your holy purposes that lead us to that unbearable death on a Friday. Called to Friday as your instruments, we are dazzled, more dazzled than grateful. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we <laughs> it's been my prayer this week that I will in us in us <laughs> I feel like it's only appropriate to say in a small way, see the glory, your glory compared to what Isaiah saw. I want to see your glory. In one sense I know that's foolish because I would be broken by it. But I want to properly pursue holiness and service motivated by a glimpse of your glory. Additionally, help me to be motivated by the forgiveness that I already have experienced and, and hold in Christ. You look on me with favor because I am cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing that I can do to add to that favor. So help me to live a life pursuing holiness and service prompted by your glory and your grace. And I ask as a represent, representative of this group this morning that all of us would pursue this proper calling. In Jesus' name, amen.